Hello, this is James Nochte with a special edition of the Beyond Borders podcast, special because it marks the opening of Scottish Global Dialogues, an initiative by Beyond Borders that will bring prominent speakers to Edinburgh in a spirit of open discussion and debate with an international perspective. As with other episodes, please follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. This inaugural lecture was given by John Kerry, President Joe Biden's climate envoy. He was speaking in the midst of preparations for the next climate summit in the Middle East, where all the participating governments have agreed to a stock-taking exercise seven years on from the historic Paris Accords on Climate. John Kerry, a veteran senator and Democratic presidential candidate before he became Barack Obama's Secretary of State at the beginning of his second term in 2012, is steeped in international affairs and a long-time campaigner for action to deal with the effects of climate change. There is no more powerful figure pressing governments around the world to commit themselves to ambitious targets for curbing emissions and limiting the rise in global warming. He spoke in the majestic surroundings of the Signet Library in Edinburgh's Old Town, a setting that captures the spirit of the Enlightenment years in the Scottish capital, and which was therefore the perfect setting for the launch of Scottish Global Dialogues, bringing the world to Edinburgh and Edinburgh to the world. First Minister, members of the diplomatic, political, legal, academic and environmental communities, young people festival participants and others, including those that are joining us from around the world. On behalf of Beyond Border Scotland and the writers of the Signet, it gives us great pleasure to welcome you and Secretary Kerry in particular here to the Signet Library in the heart of Edinburgh for him to speak to us on the climate crisis as the world moves ever closer to COP28. It was just under three months ago when I flew to the US to ask Secretary Kerry whether he might give the first address of Scottish Global Dialogues, a new joint annual lecture series dedicated to shining a policy lens on an issue of global concern during the height of the Edinburgh festivals. Unfortunately, by the time I got there, he had already gone to Rome. But I need not have worried, for early the next morning, I took a crackly call from his aide and heard the rather memorable words in the background. Give me the phone. I need to talk to Mark Muller before I see the Pope. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, as the secretary sped towards the Vatican, we talked about the convening power of the Edinburgh festivals and its original purpose to bring a shattered world together in the aftermath of the Second World War. I told him how over a million people come to Edinburgh each year to visit its multiple festivals, to connect with each other and experience the artistic wonder of the human spirit in all its forms. We also spoke of the Scottish Enlightenment and of this place, about how 250 years ago Just 100 metres from here, Dr Blair delivered his sermons in St Giles as Adam Smith ambled towards the Royal Exchange, while David Hume scribbled at the Faculty of Advocates next door. It led the King's chemist to observe, here I stand at what is called the Cross of Edinburgh, 
and can in few minutes take 50 men of genius and learning by the hand. All of this, as a young lady, Christina Stewart of Traquare, stood quietly by a window to listen to the lectures of Sir Adam Ferguson before eloping to the revolutionary colonies to become the last presidentess of the Continental Congress that handed power to George Washington to usher in the modern world. But the most remarkable fact we talked about was how these characters lived cheek by jowl with tradespeople, chimney sweeps, and Highland caddies in the cobbled wines down the Royal Mall. It was this unique communal existence that gave rise to the form of Scottish Enlightenment and led Secretary Kerry on a crisp New England morning to say, let's do this. For as he observed, if our world is to confront the climate crisis, it too must develop not only empirical, but also communal perspectives and approaches towards the prosecution of the public good. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why we are here today. We believe this place offers, at this moment, the perfect backdrop for Secretary Kerry to share his reflections with us on this critical issue. Mr Secretary, I've said too much, and I will leave it to the First Minister to introduce you and offer some reflections of his own. But before he does, can we thank his team, all of his team, and the staff of the Signet and Beyond Borders for helping us to make this event what it is today. Thanks also to the Scottish Council of Global Affairs and the festivals represented here today, including Mr. Ricky DeMarco, aged 93, who has attended every festival since 1947 and exemplifies the international spirit of our festivals. So a round of applause, Edwin. For this, uh, Secretary Kerry, this has been a truly collective effort to provide you with a small, enlightened uh, Scottish window through which to ponder our increasingly fragile world. And with that, can I give the floor to our new First Minister, Mr Hamza Youssef MSP. Thank you, Mark. Secretary Kerry, members of the Consular Corps, distinguished guests and the most distinguished guest, Mr. Ricky DeMarco. Uh, good uh, afternoon to you all. Can I thank our friends at Beyond Borders and of course the Society of Writers to the Signet for organizing this fantastic event, which will of course be an annual series, a highlight in the annual uh, calendar at the Fringe. And my thanks to Secretary Kerry, uh, of course, who's a friend of Scotland, has been to Scotland on a number of occasions. And I understand that today marks something of a, of a homecoming for you, since one of your, I'll get this right, great, 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 great grandfathers, John Forbes, was a Scot who moved to Florida in 1763. So we're delighted to welcome you back home to Scotland. It reminds me of that famous saying, Secretary Kerry, there are two types of people in the world, those who are Scottish 
and those who want to be Scottish. And whichever one you are, you are all welcome to this wonderful annual lecture series. I want to thank the audience for coming. Uh, since we are in Edinburgh in August, I'm very well aware of the fact that there are quite literally hundreds of other events going on this afternoon. So I'm really pleased to see this hall filled to the absolute brim. And I'm honored to be, uh, in true fringe style, the supporting act for this very, very important lecture. I'm also pleased to be here in this absolutely magnificent venue. This library was built at a time, as, as Mark has already mentioned, at a time when the Scottish Enlightenment had made Edinburgh one of the, if not the, intellectual centers of the world. The paintings above us in the center of this room show Scots like Robert Burns, like Adam Smith, whose tercentenary, of course, we celebrate this very year. They're right alongside poets and scientists such as Isaac Newton, Homer. They speak to the idea that Scotland has much to contribute to the world, but also much to learn from the rest of the world too. That sense of, of dialogue and exchange is still very much a guiding principle behind the Edinburgh festivals. It's of course also the inspiration behind these new Scottish global dialogues, which the Scottish government is very pleased, uh, Mark, to support. I love the concept of the Scottish global dialogues. We are, after all, a nation that loves a good gap. We love to chat, we love to talk, and yes, we love to debate robustly our strongly held beliefs. But also an outward-looking nation, a nation that has and continues to contribute our ideas to the world for the common good. Last month was, according to the UN, the hottest July ever recorded in human history. Scotland has not been immune to that. Over this summer, we've seen significant wildfires. We've received a number of warnings around water scarcity. Just think about that. In Scotland, in Dreek, wet Scotland, we have warnings of water scarcity. Let that sink in. However, of course, even worse consequences have been felt elsewhere. We've seen drought, of course, in the Horn of Africa, wildfires in Greece, Hawaii, of course, and Canada. And our sympathies uh, go to each and every single person that has been affected by those extreme weather events. The UN Secretary General, uh, Antonio Gutierrez, he said last month that the evidence is everywhere. Humanity has unleashed destruction. And of course, these tragedies are occurring at a time when the earth is 1.2 degrees warmer than in pre-industrial times. The consequences of heating going above 1.5 degrees or beyond two degrees would be utterly catastrophic. Uh, as you have said many times, Secretary Kerry, the world must act with an urgency which matches the scale of the crisis unfolding right now. And the Scottish government will play our part. When COP26 was held in Glasgow two years ago, Secretary Kerry played a reading, leading role uh, in that event. We stressed, as Scotland, that as a country which helped the, the world, helped lead the world 
into the Industrial Revolution, we would help lead the world towards a net zero future. The Under Two Coalition, with Scotland as a leading voice, will be a significant presence at COP28 later this year. And as we do look ahead to that COP, which starts in just under 100 days, I know that we are all pleased to be able to hear from Secretary Kerry. Secretary Kerry has been a lifelong campaigner on environmental issues. He attended the first ever World Earth Day demonstration in 1970. He championed Senate legislation against acid rain in the 1980s and as Secretary of State in the Obama administration. He was instrumental in achieving the Paris Climate Pact of 2015. His appointment as Special Presidential Envoy for Climate in 2021 was welcomed, it was hailed across the world as a sign that the United States would return to global leadership on the climate crisis. Since then, Secretary Kerry has helped to deliver the Glasgow Climate Pact at COP26, and he will undoubtedly again play a crucial role as we approach COP28 in Dubai. His tireless energy, his enthusiasm, his genuine belief in tackling the climate crisis is an inspiration to many of us. And as we look ahead to that COP, which will require urgent collective action, I want to end by looking back briefly. Edinburgh in August is, is defined by its festivals. They're currently bringing joy and inspiration to the city. And the very first festival was established in 1947. It was a direct response to the horrors of World War II. It was part of the global effort to build a better world, which followed the catastrophe of the war. The same impetus on a far greater scale also gave us the United States Marshall Plan. It gave us the United Nations. It gave us the forerunners to the European Union. The task we face now is to build a better world, not as a response to military catastrophe, but to prevent climate catastrophe. We arguably need to show even greater urgency, even greater initiative, and even greater ingenuity than the post-war generation so admirably did. But their example can perhaps remind us that achieving significant, lasting, and positive change is always possible, regardless of the odds against us. Scotland Secretary Kerry, ladies and gentlemen, will play a constructive part in this worldwide endeavour. In doing so, we will work with partners right across the world and we will always value and welcome the efforts of people such as Secretary Kerry. Secretary Kerry, it is my genuine honour, my genuine pleasure to welcome you here today. All of us are looking forward to what you have to say. Please, ladies and gentlemen, join with me in welcoming Secretary Kerry. Good afternoon to everybody, and thank you so much for inviting me uh, to be here to share some thoughts with you. Uh, Mark Muller-Stewart, thank you so much for uh, your role. I'm very grateful to you for making this possible, uh, and thank you for hosting it here in this remarkable place. Thank you, Signet, for doing this. I will tell you the truth, folks, to get me here. Mark didn't come and just tell me that a million people come to the festival. He told me I'd be talking to a million people. <laughs> but, um, and I want you to know, uh, 
Ricky DeMarco is sitting there. I hope the rest of you get the picture. He's taking notes, and he's been here for a long time. Uh, First Minister Hamza Yusuf, thank you very, very much for your very generous introduction. Uh, But thank you also for your leadership, for understanding with clarity what is happening and for making sure that Scotland is, in fact, uh, a leader. We're very grateful to you for that. Thank you to all of you for taking the time away from frolicking in the festival uh, and for having the good common sense to use the Signet Library as a refuge. Appreciate it. Uh, I see a number of familiar faces here. Uh, It's great to be among friends, both old and new. Uh, Though I'm a little worried, I was told as I was walking in here that the square out there was the hanging square. So we'll see how this goes, folks. Um, I was reading the lineup uh, at the Fringe Festival. Uh, Death-defying acrobats, famous actors, side-splitting comedians, clowns, And I said, man, it's just like being back in American politics. I'm at home. Uh, But it's particularly appropriate, uh, honestly, uh, particularly appropriate to have this uh, Queen Victoria window behind me, uh, this urn and this library, which means what it means in the first uh, Scottish dialogue, uh, the first Scotland dialogue. And I'm very honored to, to be the first speaker Uh, it's appropriate, beyond belief, that we are here in Scotland. Less than 300 years ago, from Hutton to Hume, groundbreaking thinking uh, contributed to the enlightenment, not just of a country or of a continent, but of civilization itself. And it was here that James Hutton first found in the exposed rock face of Jedburgh scientific proof visible to the naked eye of the transition from ocean bed to land, back to ocean bed, and finally, evidence of the land that he could see and experience and which we still treasure today. In so doing, he may well have been the world's first climate scientist, but the Enlightenment writ large transformed thinking to win acceptance of a basic principle that science-based evidence, not vested power promulgating its own tradition, is the foundation of the laws of the universe. It won broad acceptance for the notion that any theory should be established by observation and that hypotheses should be tested against the evidence. Hutton, David Hume, and Adam Smith were not alone. Across the sea in 1755, an earthquake flattened Lisbon, set it aflame, and then caused a massive tsunami that swept the Tagus River into the city, killing more than 40,000 people. And the ruling order of the time said, there's only one explanation as there had been for every earthquake or flood that preceded it, divine retribution for earthly pride and sin. That was the reason. But Voltaire stood up, and he argued that the science and the evidence proved that not that, 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 nature, that, that it was nature's hand, not the, the hand of a vengeful God, 
that was responsible for the movement of the Earth's crusts, and that if we studied the Earth's plates, we might avoid future massive loss of life. His advocacy triumphed in a principal debate of the day. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is no exaggeration to say that in 2023, we again stand on the precipice of where Hutton and Voltaire and others once stood. Despite a vast array of facts, beyond any shadow of a doubt, of any reasonable doubt, despite thousands of scientists accumulating hard data all their lives, and without a single piece of peer-reviewed documentation to the contrary, we are again witnessing another moment in which the persuasive force of evidence, and with it, Earth's future, hangs in the balance. All because some extremist political voices, holdout nations, and vastly vested interests have declared war on facts and science. All because they distort for political and personal gain what science and common sense dictate we humans must do in order to put our house in order. These interests would actually choose a destructive status quo over the opportunity to build a clean energy economy which can rescue our future, put millions of people to work, and leave us all safer, stronger, more secure. Without facts or economics on their side, they flatly deny what is happening to our planet and what we must do to save it. They incite a movement against what they falsely label climate change fanaticism, as they conveniently forget that the dictionary definition of a cult is the dismissal of facts in devotion to a lie. And while they refuse to accept the facts behind increasingly obvious damages, which the First Minister listed, they lash out at the truth-tellers instead and label indisputable evidence as hysteria. They compound the already difficult challenge of the climate crisis by promising to do more of exactly what created this crisis in the first place. So now, humanity is inexorably threatened by humanity itself, by those seducing people into buying into a completely fictitious alternative reality where we don't need to act and we don't even need to care. But just as clearly as Hutton could see in the layers of the rock face, Mother Nature is now sending an ever more desperate distress signal about the coming catastrophe as community after community, event after event, confirms the excruciating spread of threatened and even uninhabitable places. In Iraq, in the home of the Tigris and Euphrates, rivers, which I remember distinctly as a kid, almost one of the first things I learned, was that this was the cradle of civilization. And now a recent article quoted a science teacher who stated, nowhere has water. Everyone who is left is suffering a slow death. And just consider the scene, waterless, unlivable villages near the Euphrates River, 
where families are dismantling their homes brick by brick, piling them up into pickup trucks, window frames, doors and all, and driving away. These, my friends, are the real faces of the climate crisis. Now magnify those by millions. Around the world, people are moving because they can't grow food, because they are flooded, because they can't live and work in the extreme heat because the air that they are forced to breathe is clogged with pollution, greenhouse gas pollution, that kills someone prematurely every five seconds around the world. The climate crisis is not just a passing environmental impact event happening in a few selected places. It is global and indiscriminate in its consequences. It can hit almost anywhere at any time. Just look at Pakistan, with an out-of-control flood displacing over 30 million people in a matter of hours. In northwest China, temperatures have climbed to 52 degrees centigrade this summer, while uh, in southern China, typhoons have similarly killed dozens and displaced tens of thousands. Wildfires have torn across the Mediterranean, from Greece to Algeria, spreading as far as Syria, where the UN has said 800,000 people are living in camps in danger. Water temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico have averaged over 88 degrees Fahrenheit, and off the coast of Florida just a few weeks ago, it was measured as a record 100 degrees Fahrenheit, water in the ocean. In cities like Phoenix, Arizona, 30 consecutive days of 100 degree Fahrenheit temperatures. They have actually caused some people to literally turn nocturnal and starting their days after the sun has gone down. These are not just simple weather events, my friends. These are once in a lifetime catastrophes happening regularly now, and they are a manifestation of the profound changes taking place on our planet. Think about it another way. NOAA, the National Organization for Administration and Atmosphere, they found that since the beginning of 2020, a billion-dollar climate disaster occurs somewhere on the planet about once every 18 days. And yet the cost in human lives and livelihoods is even greater. No one living these tragic realities doubts for an instant that the climate crisis is real or that it's here now and getting worse tomorrow. This year, this year is worse than last year, but I got news for you. Next year is gonna be worse than this year. That's what's happening. None of the destruction unfolding daily should be a surprise to anybody. Scientists have been predicting it for decades now, except for one big difference. Now, it is all unfolding faster and much more severely than was forecast. And what's really disturbing, if you're not moved by what I've already said, is that as heat records are being broken uh, globally in unprecedented sequence, continent to continent, scientists who have spent a lifetime tracking this human-made crisis have described themselves Go read it. They've described themselves as alarmed, terrified. That's a quote. 
And as one said unequivocally, we are now in uncharted territory. Why are we in uncharted territory? Because we are now on the precipice of tipping points, the point at which events can simply unfold of their own momentum, the point at which our reckless abuse of the ecosystem forces nature way beyond our control, even if it ever was. These moments of irreversibility, my friends, will over time mean the loss of glaciers, critical to the feeding of rivers, which in turn sustain much of the world. It means the shifting or drying up of rivers, the sea level rise that will be catastrophic. I flew to the Arctic. I've seen what's happening as it is four times warming faster than the rest of the planet. Or the Antarctic which will melt at an increasingly threatening level with sea level rise measured in meters, not feet. No one can predict with certainty the exact pace and scope of this unraveling. No one should pretend to. But common sense, which is supposed to be part of governing, common sense tells us inaction does not have a prayer of stopping what is happening. Those who promote procrastination, delay, and denial, believe me, they will wind up at the bottom of the dustbin of history. But it's up to us to decide whether they're going to drag the rest of civilization down there with them. That's the challenge. By denying or downplaying the problem, naysayers are prepared to accept that younger generations already alive today won't inherit anything resembling the world that belonged to their parents and grandparents. Unless we all of us start doing more, faster, now, future generations will trade the inalienable right to the pursuit of happiness for the struggle of survival. Merely staying alive is not the legacy that any of us should want to leave to future generations. And how could we dare to when the solution is so clear? The climate crisis is the result of the unabated burning of fossil fuel, deforestation, and super pollutants from industry and agriculture. That's it, folks. That's it. That's the whole of the climate crisis. Those emissions form an ever-increasing blanket of greenhouse gas pollution, which traps the heat Damage done. And we humans are really trying to bend the laws, the very laws of physics, chemistry, mathematics, rather than apply them. And that's breaking our planet. It should be obvious by now we have better choices, and they're very simple. Stop using fossil fuels, unabated fossil fuels, Capture the entirety of the emissions, if you can, and cut methane and other climate super pollutants for the fastest climate benefits. Problem, solution. I believe we actually are on the cusp of a change in the speed of this transition. In little less than 100 days, as, as uh, the First Minister mentioned, we're going to convene in Dubai. And despite the troubled road that I have described, which is real, despite that which has brought us to this point, 
I think, I believe in this moment, and I've been doing this since, you know, tracking this issue since 1988 when Jim Hansen first talked about it. I think in this moment, we actually have a unique opportunity to significantly accelerate this transition to a clean energy economy. We are at a different moment than we have ever been, in my judgment. There is more hope, and more than hope, there is progress. And in these next days on the road to COP28 and at the COP itself, we have the potential to reach a different kind of tipping point, a tipping point in the speed and breadth of our response. Thanks to the Paris Agreement, we have the chance to assess our progress through a review called the Global Stock Take, a report card to see how we are all doing together, taking into account the latest science. And when the Paris Agreement was written in 2015, we set out to limit the rise of Earth's temperature to well below 2 degrees, but to pursue 1.5 degrees as our priority. And that is something that came out of the sense of urgency of the island states and vulnerable countries in the world. They were listened to in that. So while we're significantly off track, and we are at this moment, Still, the Paris Agreement has achieved an extraordinary amount. It has created a framework that is our best hope for winning this battle. The 1.5 degree limit on warming, net zero emissions, global stock take, these are the ideas that come from the Paris Agreement. And after the COP in Glasgow in 2021, the International Energy Agency determined that if everyone did what they had promised, we would limit warming to 1.8 degrees centigrade. That was put on the books in Glasgow. After Sharm el-Sheikh last year, that projection dropped to 1.7 degrees of warming. The problem is not everyone is doing what they said they would do, or even doing what the IPCC report of 2018 said we need to do. And we are currently, therefore, on track with emissions rising, not falling. Now, what we already know from our own personal stock takes is that we are behind, and at COP28, we need to universally raise ambition and propel implementation. Like Hume and Hutton, we really are compelled to respond to the evidence we have, and that evidence tells us that every country on the planet with significant emissions and emerging nations that have significant emissions must kick into higher gear. I take encouragement that we are now seeing more reasons for an optimism. Remember, it's important, not everything needs to be done by next year or by the COP, let alone in the next seven years. We need to be on a trend line and the IEA has told us we could be on that trend line if we just deployed available technology, solar, wind, clean energy. The science dictates that we all need to achieve a minimum 45% reduction by 2030 and then get firmly on the road to net zero 2050. On that goal, there are a number of encouraging advances. First, we are seeing renewable energy deploy faster as both a result and, and cause for further price reductions, as a result of the production uh, price reductions, but also that propels more reduction. And since 2009, the cost of solar has decreased 83%. 
The cost of producing wind has gone down more than 50%. And in the last three decades, the cost of lithium batteries has fallen 97%. The marketplace will increasingly deploy capital to these sectors, and that will add even more speed to the transition. And the pace of electric vehicle manufacture and sales is already geared at a stage way beyond expectations. So it's going to result in a, in a diminishment of the demand for fossil fuel. And that will send a powerful message to Wall Street, to the marketplace, about the economies of the future. And that will greatly accelerate this transition. In the United States, under President Biden's leadership, the Inflation Reduction Act, along with the bipartisan infrastructure law, $1.2 trillion in that, are already having a profound positive impact, driving over a trillion dollars in clean energy investment by the end of the decade. We're also witnessing extraordinary progress in wind power with turbines that now produce more and more energy than we've ever been able to produce from one turbine. 20 to 50 megawatts they're talking about at this point in time. Wind works. And the faster we can get the permitting and the deployment of that, the sooner we will offer Mother Nature the space and capacity to heal. Two years ago, as we approached COP26 in Glasgow, China and the United States joined together to agree that there should be no more foreign financing of coal-fired power plants. Now is the time for all of us to join together and take a more critical step. There should be no more permitting of any new unabated coal-fired power anywhere in the world. Now, knowing what we know are the impacts, and given the alternative options, there is just no rational reason for contributing more to the problem by turning to the world's dirtiest fuel burned in the dirtiest way. In the United States, renewables are now the largest source of new energy. And, and we're the largest oil and gas producer in the world. But the largest gain in power production has come from alternatives and renewables. And renewables now account for about nearly 90% of all the new power capacity globally. And Scotland is also playing a key part in that process. What is clear now is that the marketplace has made its decision. Ford and General Motors have decided they're going electric. They're not going to turn around after investing tens of billion dollars and fixing their plants to be able to produce electric. They're never going back to ice, you know, internal combustion engine. That's not happening. No politician in the US or elsewhere can reverse the course that we are on. And I am absolutely convinced we will get to a low carbon, no carbon economy. I am not convinced that we're going to do so in time to avoid the worst consequences of the climate crisis. That remains our challenge. Though there are also, on that challenge, increasing ripples of hope. In Nigeria, a courageous decision by the new president to reform fossil fuel subsidies is going to save the country billions of dollars, and it's poised to unleash a new clean energy investment boom that Bloomberg estimates is going to see Nigeria's solar capacity grow by over 2,000 percent by 2030. The fastest growing heat pump market in the world in 2022 was Poland, 
which more than doubled its supply, while also pushing ahead with key nuclear plant plans as a key to the source of zero emissions energy. <clears throat> and this past year, we saw two historic experiments, one in the US and one in the UK, produce net energy gain from a fusion reaction, a major milestone to the quest to commercialize abundant clean energy from fusion. This year, more money, $1.7 trillion worldwide, will be invested in clean energy technologies like wind and solar and EVs and batteries and hydrogen and, and ammonia and so forth. And there's going to be more money invested for the first time than in fossil fuel. One of the greatest restraints on progress in this transition is the lack of adequate financing. Trillions of dollars in private capital have been sitting on the sidelines. In the last 10, 12 years, particularly when interest rates were lower, we saw uh, people parking their money and literally paying for the privilege of doing so rather than investing in the potential return on investment of 10%, 12%, 15%, which used to be an okay investment. The fact is that those people who make the decisions about that capital are sitting on the sidelines waiting for greater confidence about those investments before betting on the net zero transition. So we, particularly people in public life, need to be more creative in de-risking those, those investments and creating pools of concessional funding which will give confidence to investors. The Biden administration is full on helping to lead a global effort that will significantly expand the amount of low cost credit available to countries for climate action through entities like the World Bank, which now under the new leadership of uh, Ajay Banga is leading the charge to unlock billions in new financing. Things are happening, my friends. We also can't achieve our goals without the fossil fuel industry itself. The industry must step up and create a clear roadmap that aligns with Paris, Glasgow, Sharm el-Sheikh. And in the next weeks, we have an opportunity to set out a real plan if we will sit down and work at that in a, in a sensible, thoughtful way. We can take massive steps forward. Now, I restate what I said earlier. This is one of the most dangerous moments in human history. But it may also be the greatest moment of opportunity for human advancement. We have the chance now to write a future filled with choices that not only make life cleaner, healthier, fairer, safer. We, one thing I think people have proven throughout history is an incredible capacity for innovation. The fact is, <coughs> excuse me, the fact is that an amazing amount is now happening on multiple fronts. We're well into the energy transition, and it can and should be the greatest economic opportunity since the Industrial Revolution. Just think about it. Building a smart grid, installing new transmission lines, connecting one source of renewable to another so you can balance your your, your, your base load, deploying solar fields, wind farms, adjusting infrastructure for efficiency, renewing transportation, 
constructing efficient buildings from which massive amounts of, of uh, uh, greenhouse gas comes. All of this enterprise of this transition is going to demand electricians, plumbers, heavy equipment operators, aluminum, concrete, cement workers, plants, architects. Every layer of economic endeavor will be engaged in this transformation. This should excite the imagination, not depress us. But this is much more than just an economic opportunity, folks. It is, above all, an opportunity to redefine our relationship with the future. Because the future is what we are fighting for. The battle may be pitched in the present, but I got news. It's going to be won in the days and in the decades ahead. Now, I know it may feel intangible, ethereal, to imagine a planet, a whole planet in distress. It seems beyond comprehension. There are lots of granular here and now things that we're all asked to do in life. Go to work, pay the bills, raise a family, be a good citizen. And in the course of all that, it's pretty hard to grab onto the fact that all of humanity is actually in peril. Actually in peril in a way that Hume, Hutton, and Smith, and others whose names are on this building proved you don't have to suffer. You don't have to quit. They kept arguing. They kept innovating. And they prevailed. And guess what? They didn't actually have on their side what we have on ours. They were defending science and reason in an era where people were still told and almost universally believed that the Earth might be flat, that the planet might be held in the palm of one giant beast, and that disease would be cured by bleeding people, and that life would be restored by mighty bellows pumping air into the dead. We have our own new breed of doubters today, but what we do have on our side is something special. 350 years of proof of concept from antibiotics, moon landings, a vaccine to fight a pandemic, so that we are empowered to take the biggest leap forward for all of humankind when we listen to science and reason and act on it. 200 years ago, an admirer of the Enlightenment, Immanuel Kant, wrote, science is organized knowledge. Wisdom is organized life. Right now, the science and the knowledge are unequivocal. All that is left for us now is to summon the wisdom to organize our world, to do what must be done and win this fight. Thank you. I'm Aminata Fauna, a writer and director of the Lannan Centre at Georgetown University. I'm also one of the presenters of the new Beyond Borders podcast. You've just been listening to Secretary Carey set out the case for evidence-based policymaking with clarity and passion, exactly what global policymakers heading to COP28 next week need to hear too. 
In terms of Secretary Kerry, he retains his extraordinary drive and grasp of detail and determination to go out there and try and change things for the better. And he has no greater sort of task than climate. And he does that with such verve, such energy, such commitment. So one takeaway was just his sheer presence, his sheer commitment to the issue which I think inspired everyone in the hall. I'm Robert Peary. I'm the chief executive of uh, the WS Society. We've heard Senator Kerry this morning talking about climate change, an issue, as he said, which is really bringing the world to crisis. It was just very compelling to hear that voice of America that we know is there come and speak to us on this subject of climate. I'm Jim Nochte, a journalist who works for the BBC. I thought John Kerry's speech was an indication of what you get when there's a grown-up in the room. And you just get that sense of power and a kind of continuity of thinking over decades, but the kind of sense of somebody who has grown through an argument that's been going on in his own head for decades. And I think that's very moving. You can be rational and passionate at the same time, and that's what this is all about. Passionate for change that is grounded in good thinking, good argument, and a commitment to the future.